Revelation chapter 20 tonight is one of the most thrilling and important chapters of Scripture in the book of Revelation, and I would say in the entire Bible. I know I say that about a lot of chapters, but tonight I really mean it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a remarkable chapter because it tells us uh, about certain things having to, that will come to pass, I should say, in prophecy that are absolutely essential for us to grab a hold of. Let's just begin here. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Last week in Revelation chapter 19, we saw Jesus Christ return to the earth in his glorious second coming. He came mounted on a white horse with the the, the armies of heaven on white horses coming after him. And he came back to conquer this earth and to make the kingdoms of this world the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior. He came back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every human king, every human president, every human dictator, every human governor, I mean down to dog catcher, is overthrown. Because there's a new administration. This isn't done by election, this is done by divine right. And Jesus Christ comes in, and he is the new king of planet Earth. And that's how he returned back in glory to Earth. And we saw that at the end of Revelation chapter 19, that there was a tremendous battle. That the Earth, by and large, did not receive Jesus with open arms. But in this battle that we know as the battle of Armageddon, men, foolish enough as they are, are trying to keep Jesus Christ and his heavenly armies off of the Earth. But they're slaughtered. The slaughter is so immense that an angelic call goes out to all the the, the scavenger birds of the world and says, you come on down to the Valley of Armageddon because there's going to be a big feast for you. The dead bodies of the enemies of God who were foolish enough to fight against Jesus Christ. Now, after that, we come to Revelation chapter 20. And as we saw in the first verse, which I just read, We see now an angel coming down from heaven. Please note in verse 1 that this is a generic angel. It's plain rap. Nothing notable said about this angel. It's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. It's not a high-ranking cherubim. It's just an angel. My personal theory. And we know that angels have some kind of rank or dignity. There's, there's different sorts of ranks and categories of angels. Some are more glorious. Some are more powerful than others. My personal belief is that God is going to pick the weakest and lowliest angel in all of heaven and put a great big chain in his hand and say, I've got a little errand for you to do. And look at this errand. Verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Do you understand this, friends? When the time comes to pull the reins in on Satan, to to bind him, to chain him up, all God does is dispatch a generic angel. It could be the lowliest angel in all of the heavens. He dispatches a lowly angel and he says, go take care of this guy. And he does it. 
Now, I don't know about you, but if, you, if you're like me, you stand back at this and you sort of scratch your head and you say, Lord, if it was this easy, why didn't you do it a long time ago? But doesn't that show us something? Friends, Satan is not God's opposite. Some people have in their minds this thing of, you know, God and Satan are sort of slugging it out, you know, across the, 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 the universe there. And wow, Satan really landed a punch on God. And oh boy, God, I hope he gets him back good. No, there's not some equal struggle and some equal playing field as if God and Satan were boxers in the same ring. God owns the ring. He owns the, the whole stadium. He owns the ground that it's on. He owns all the fighters. My friends, this leads us to a very sobering recognition. Whatever God allows Satan to do, he allows it for a purpose. And in the end, it will only serve the divine purpose. Now, that does not mean that we should take a fatalistic view towards whatever Satan does. Just sort of this, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever happens, happens. No, because part of how God redeems each event is through the impassioned prayers and participation of his people. But friends, don't you understand that God could do this to the devil anytime he pleases? No, no, this is a dramatic declaration that Satan is not God's opposite or equal and that God could easily stop Satan's activity at any time. Satan's evil indirectly serves the purposes of God. You say, well, how can that be? Friends, I have to say, when, when I say that, in part I say it in faith. Because I don't understand it all either. I don't understand how God weaves together each thread in that tapestry. I don't understand it. It's like when you look at the back of a, of a tapestry and, and it just looks like an all jumble of, of different colored threads and knots and all this and you can't make any sense of it, but then you turn it over on the other side and you see what a beautiful pattern there is. Friends, from the side of this earth, from this perspective, all we can see is the back side of it. We can't see God's beautiful pattern, but we will see it one day. And I know that God could give no more dramatic example of Satan doing his best to defeat God and God using it for good than the glorious work that Jesus wrought at the cross. I mean, that was Satan's heyday. He thought that he had killed the Son of God. Friends, you see how God turned it for good, the greatest good that could ever be. If you notice in verse 2, this angel comes and he lays hold of the dragon he binds him, he casts him, he shut him up, and he set a seal on him. I think it's wonderful that Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, but he couldn't. But God has no problem restraining Satan. And this incarceration, it's not for punishment, it's for restraint. Might I say that by implication, the demonic hordes of Satan are also restrained. It's not like Satan himself is restrained, but the demons can go out and do whatever they want. Uh, I think you, you, you shut down the head, you shut down the whole operation. And friends, might I say that this is a literal transaction that takes place. There will come a time when after Jesus Christ returns in glory to this earth, that that actual angel is going to take an actual chain of some kind and will actually bind Satan and put him into a place of imprisonment. Satan is a literal being. Jesus Christ is a literal being. Angels are literal beings. There's nothing else you can say that will adequately resolve this. 
And some people scoff and say, how can a chain hold the devil? Well, I don't know. But I know that God can fashion a chain for that exact purpose. And I know that right here and right now, there are demonic spirits in this world, in this universe, I should say that we live in. We don't know where they are. But somewhere in this cosmos, there is a prison for demonic spirits. And they're chained up in there right now. What, you, you don't remember that? Well, keep your finger here. Turn back to the book of Jude. It's the book right before the book of Revelation. And look at verse 6. It says, And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. What kind of chains can bind a demonic spirit? I don't know, but God has them. And if God can chain these demonic spirits right now, he can chain Satan for a thousand years. This is what else I want you to see, my friends. I want you to see that this binding of Satan happens not through the work of any man, but by the finger of God. God dispatches an angel, and the angel takes care of it. Now, there's a lot of erroneous thinking when it comes to the idea of our ability to bind Satan. There's an aspect of it which is very true and needs to be seized upon by every believer. Friends, Satan doesn't have to have any leeway to do work in your life. You can bind his working in your life in a marvelous, glorious way. Absolutely so. And you should recognize and, and take that, that aggressive posture in prayer before the Lord to, to, to take that ground before him. Friends, sometimes people think that we can bind Satan or demonic spirits just by saying it's so. Now, I wish that were the case. If that were the case, I think we should have a prayer meeting right now and bind all of Satan's working all over the earth right now. But you can't do that. It's not God's appointed time. God appoints us a sphere in which we can do that, but beyond that, we cannot. So friends, you need to use wisdom in this and go on scriptural principles and not superstitious sorts of things or just assuming and understanding. No, friends, it's, if God wants to restrain the work of Satan, and he will at this point, he will totally restrain him. Bind him up and cast him into this pit. Now, notice what aspect of his work is stopped. Verse 3, so that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, this shows us what Satan's main mode of attack is. Satan is a deceiver. So the most potent defense and weapon against Satan is the truth of God's word. You know, the truth is always Satan's enemy. And falsehood is always his great weapon. Friends, you need to understand something about falsehood and the whole nature of it. Naked falsehood is repulsive. When it's bare and open and grotesque, why anybody can see it. When you go down to the bank and say, uh, I'd like to cash a $100 bill, please, and you lay down that Monopoly money, you're not going to get very far, are you? They'll look at it, and they'll laugh you to pieces. But if you take out a well-made counterfeit bill, it may just work. Friends, can we understand that this is the most dangerous kind of falsehood? It's falsehood that's disguised as the truth. 
Matter of fact, falsehood has no power over us until we're led to believe and until we conclude that it is the truth. And this is the subtle and powerful work of Satan to delude men and to get them to accept and follow lies and false hopes under the false persuasion that they're accepting and following the truth. He's very good at that work, but one day it will end. Now, there are some people who believe in their understanding of God's prophetic scenario and timetable that this binding of Satan has already taken place. That Satan is bound with this chain, maybe in light of Jesus' work on the cross, maybe in light of Jesus' victory at the empty tomb, maybe in light of the power of the Spirit coming upon the church on the day of Pentecost. They, They think that perhaps those things have bound Satan's working. Well, friends, if that's the case, then I just simply want to say, Satan's got a pretty long chain. Because if you don't see Satan at work today in the work of deceiving the nations, you're blind. You're absolutely blind. One commentator, Joseph Seiss, says, People not only make falsehoods, speak falsehoods, print falsehoods, and believe falsehoods, but they eat them and drink them and wear them and act them and live them and make them one of the great elements of their being. Friends, the nations are still deceived. Satan is still at work. As a matter of fact, we know that Satan is not bound in the way that Revelation chapter 20 speaks of because in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said that Satan is free to roam about the earth as a ravenous lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not bound. He's roaming about the earth. No, this has not yet happened. But when it does happen, if you notice, verse 3, It will last until a thousand years are finished. Friends, this thousand year period is often known as the millennium. And through church history, there's been many different ways of understanding this period of time that we know as the millennium. The Bible speaks powerfully to other aspects of the millennial earth, but tragically, The church through history has often ignored or denied the promise of a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, for the first 300 years or so of the history of the church, the the, the church believed in a coming earthly historical reign of Jesus that was initiated by his return. But then in the late 300s, a Bible teacher named Tychonius was the first to influentially champion a spiritualized interpretation. And he said that basically the millennium is now. Well, Jesus Christ reigns now, doesn't he? He's enthroned now. Satan is bound now. The church reigns now. And he championed the spiritualized understanding of the millennium. It was adopted by Augustine. And then the Roman Catholic Church, and by the way, by most Reformed theologians. Friends, this teaching that the millennium is right now, that we're in it, friends, this is known as amillennialism. Growing out of amillennialism is another approach to this called postmillennialism. Postmillennialism says that, that the millennium will happen in this age before Jesus' return but that the church will bring it to pass. 
In other words, our job is to get out there and preach the gospel and to convert the world and to change the governments and the institutions of this world into glorious Christian governments and Christian institutions and Christian structures of power. And when we do that, and when it lasts for a thousand years, then Jesus Christ will return to this earth and we'll present it as a great big gift to him. Friends, the clear teaching of the Bible is not amillennialism. It isn't post-millennialism. I strongly believe that it's what's called pre-millennialism. The teaching that Jesus Christ will return to this earth before the millennial earth and that he'll establish and govern it directly. I don't know about you, but that's just what we've read in the last two chapters. Jesus Christ returns in glory to this earth. There's a horrific battle known as Armageddon. And then after that, Satan's bound. Friends, there's just no need to say that Satan is only bound in a spiritual sense and that Jesus only rules in a spiritual sense. When we consider the rest of the scriptures, the earthly reign of Jesus Christ and his people on this earth is taught in the Old and in the New Testaments. Psalm 72, Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah 23, uh, and many other passages in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 19, on and on and on. All in all, there are more than 400 verses in more than 20 different passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament which deal with this time when Jesus Christ rules and reigns personally on the earth. Now, one of the great questions people have is, well, who will be on the earth in the millennium? I mean, if God's people are going to rule and reign with him, who are they going to rule and, roll, rule and reign over? What, the dogs and the cats that are over the, survive the great tribulation? No. Friends, even after the rapture, even after the vast judgments of the great tribulation, there will be many, many people left on this earth. I mean, if you were just to throw out a figure right now, and say that uh, there are 5 billion people on earth. There's more than that, but let's just use that as a round figure. 5 billion people. Well, you say, well, what percentage of that are born-again Christians? Well, they say that a billion people on this earth claim to be Christians. They take the title in some way or another as Christians. And let's just say, as a generous example, let's say that all of them are genuinely born again. Just for example's sake. So at the rapture of the church, let's say a billion people leave planet Earth. Let's just say that. So what do you have left? You have four billion. Well, let's say that uh, through the whole horrific judgments of the Great Tribulation, we find that one-third of the human population is massacred. Friends, that's an awesome number of people. But you're only talking about a little over a billion people. So when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, even considering the great carnage, the great plague, the great destruction, when Jesus Christ comes to this earth, he's going to return to an earth that has at least two or three billion people on it. Now, will all of them go into the great, uh, excuse me, go into the millennial kingdom? No. The Bible says very clearly in Matthew chapter 25, in the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Friends, Matthew 25, when it speaks of the judgment of the sheep and the goats, that's not deciding who goes to heaven and who doesn't. It's deciding who gets to go into the millennial kingdom and who does not. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth, he's going to have a judgment of the people who remain on this earth. And those who, well, I'll just say it, those who are good citizens, moral, upstanding people, they will be allowed to go into the 
kingdom of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom. Those who are not, I assume they will get an immediate pass to their eternal reward or lack thereof. So friends, you see, there's going to be a vast multitude on this earth who pass in from the great tribulation, surviving it, and go into the millennial earth. And it's going to be quite a time on the earth during then. During the millennium, the Bible tells us that Israel, little Israel, will be the superpower of the world. It's hard for us to relate to what the idea of America as a superpower means to the rest of the world. I mean, because we're Americans. We just kind of know it. You know, we, we just kind of, well, yeah, I mean, we're America. We're number one. We're, we've got the biggest economy, the biggest government. All that, that's just the way Americans think. But you don't know what it's like being in another country, and the people just don't think that way. And they, they're very aware that there's another country that's bigger and more powerful and usually more obnoxious and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Well, friends, you get the idea here. Israel is going to be the superpower of the earth. Little Israel. They're going to be the leading nation on this earth during the millennium. Be the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house, will be the temple mount. That will be the capital of the government of the Messiah. And the Bible says that all the nations shall flow to the capital of the government of Jesus. Friends, you know how in any nation of the world, you know, whenever there's a conflict or something like that, everybody wants to know, what's Washington going to do about it? What's Washington going to do about it? They won't be saying that in the millennium. They're going to be saying, what's Jerusalem going to do about it? What's the administration of Jesus Christ going to answer in this problem? See, my friends, during the millennium, the citizens of this earth will acknowledge and submit to the lordship of Jesus. It will be a time of perfectly administrated and enforced righteousness on this earth. During the millennium, there will be no more war. There will still be conflicts between nations and individuals. It's not perfect people that go into the millennium. They may be fine, upstanding people, but not perfect people. But there will be no more wars. There will be no more conflicts between nations and individuals. But they will be justly and decisively resolved by the Messiah and those who reign with him. It isn't the reign of the Messiah itself that will change the hearts of men. Citizens on earth will still need to trust in Jesus and his work on the cross on their behalf for their personal salvation. But war and armed conflict will not be tolerated. Could you imagine what it would be like, my friends, if, if somebody committed a crime? Somebody, uh, you know, robbed somebody else. And they didn't get lost in the maze and the morass of our modern day legal system. But right away, they were taken to a perfect government, a perfect court, with perfect justice, immediately executed. I think there'd be a lot less robbery. Friends, do you know that during the millennium, even the way that animals relate to each other and to humans will be transformed? The Bible says that a little child will be safe and able to lead a wolf or a leopard or a young lion or a bear. Even the dangers of predators like cobras and vipers will be gone. You know, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, the Lord gave Noah and all mankind after him the permission to eat meat. At the same time, God put the dread of man within animals just so they wouldn't be, you know, walking around meals for man. Put a little fairness here in the equation. But you know, now in the reign of the Messiah, all that's reversed. No longer are animals hostile towards man. Now, this may mean that humans will return to being vegetarians during the millennium as it seems that they were before the flood, before Genesis chapter 9. So friends, if we're going to be vegetarians during the millennium, 
Now's the time to get it in. Oh, that's just a little joke. The Bible tells us that during the millennium, King David will have a prominent place in the millennial earth. You know, Jesus Christ is going to rule over the whole earth, but there will be individuals, glorified human beings, who will reign over nations and counties and states and all of that. You know who's going to rule over Israel? David himself. King David. He's going to be in charge over Israel. And who's he going to answer to? Well, Jesus. Jesus is going to be king over all the earth. And then King David will rule over Israel. During the millennium, there will be blessing and security for national Israel. During the millennium, it will be a time of purity and devotion to God. During the millennium, there will be a rebuilt temple and a restored temple service on the millennial earth as a memorial of God's work in the past. And during the millennium, the saints in their resurrected state will be given millennial, will be given responsibility, I should say, in the millennial earth according to their faithful service. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ wants you to serve in his administration on the millennial earth. Might I even say that he has a spot picked out for you right now, and he's training you to serve in it. You wonder, Lord, why am I going through this? Why am I going through this trial, this mess? Lord, it's so unfair. Why, my Christian brother or sister over there, they've got it. They never go through these trials. And look at my life. Well, first of all, you probably don't even know anything about the trials that your brother or sister goes through. Secondly, friends, God is dealing with you. He has an eternal plan, eternal destiny for you. And might I say, you need to step up to the plate and take it. You need to realize that you're destined to sit on a throne and rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And he's training you and honing you and shaping you so that you can fit into that position that he has planned for you perfectly. And you look around and say, it doesn't make any sense in this life. You're absolutely correct. But God has called you to a lot more than this life. A lot more. He's called you to rule and reign in this millennial earth. And he's training you for that. You know, when a soldier enlists in the military and prepares for military service, they have this period of time that they call basic training. And it's a time where the, the, the soldier's put in an unnatural environment, unnaturally harsh. It's not what normal life, even what normal life in the military is all about. It's much more difficult, much more trying, much more grueling. But the soldier knows, I'm doing this because I've got a long career after me in the military that I need to prepare for, and this is the period of time that prepares me for it. Ladies and gentlemen, right now, you and I are in basic training. This isn't going to be what it's like all the time. But it's a necessary thing that we need to go through to prepare us for the service that awaits us. And how long will it be? Well, there's two answers. First of all, it says till the thousand years were finished. So the first answer to how long this will be, it's for a thousand years. I think we should take a number literally in the Bible unless we have good reason not to. And so when it says a thousand years, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it is a thousand years. Now, that's one aspect of it, but let me demonstrate another aspect of it. Friends, Jesus Christ is not going to reign for only a thousand years. As Handel said in the Messiah, he shall reign forever and ever. 
Now, this specific administration on the earth that we call the millennial earth, that'll last for a thousand years. But he's not going to stop reigning. Jesus Christ is not going to lay down his crown after that thousand years. But it'll just change in the way that he exercises his leadership. Now, why? Lord, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you have this thousand-year reign planned out? There are many, many reasons. But let me suggest to you just a few. First of all, the millennium is important because it will demonstrate Jesus' victory and his worthiness to rule the nations. My friends, when Jesus Christ came to this earth the first time, man rejected him. Matter of fact, they, they rejected him and they said, we have no king but Caesar. I don't think that's fair, do you? I think Jesus Christ can rule this earth much better than any emperor, than any king, than any politician. And I think he deserves a chance, don't you? I think that there's something wrong if in all the course of human history, this world is never brought under the authority and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Friends, and I also think it'll, it'll demonstrate that the victory of Jesus surpasses all of that. Secondly, the millennium is important. Because it will reveal the depths of man's rebellious nature in a perfect environment. We're going to see this in a few verses. But when the thousand years are over and Satan is released, he's going to organize a a rebellion against those people who are still on the earth after the millennium. Friends, you see, some people want to believe that man is basically good. That deep down we really want God. And we really want his righteous rule. And the only thing that that messes us up, we're really innocent people, aren't we? The only thing that messes us up is our bad environment. Oh, that's how it is, isn't it, friends? Well, of course I do what I do. You, You should have seen the family I grew up in. Well, of course I am the way I am. Did you see the neighborhood I grew up in? Why, in an environment like mine, how could you do anything but turn out bad? Friends, we're all recognizing the fact that a bad environment can take something and make it worse. But it didn't make it bad to begin with. You know what? God is going to give mankind a thousand years of perfect administration. A thousand years of perfect environment. A thousand years of it. And at the first opportunity man has to rebel, he's going to jump on it. I want you to notice, God does this before the great white throne judgment, before it. It's essential that he does it before it, because he wants to demonstrate before he calls all the ungodly to account, you can't say that it was in your environment, because I gave mankind a thousand years of a perfect environment, and he was just as corrupt as ever. The millennium is also important because it will display the eternal depravity of Satan who continues as evil as soon as he's released from his incarceration. You know how you give kids a time out when they've been bad and you hope they'll come back and be better? God's going to give Satan a thousand year time out. And when he comes back, he's just as bad as ever. Fourth and finally, the millennium is important because it'll show the invulnerability of the city of God and God's new order. We'll see that in this chapter. Better move on to verse 4 here. And I saw thrones, 
And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Friends, who sits on these thrones? It's you and I. It's the company of saints as a whole. And from these thrones, they live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. They reign with Jesus for the same period of time that Satan is bound. And they administrate the kingdom of Jesus Christ over this earth, reigning over those who pass from the earth of the great tribulation to the earth of the millennial rule of Jesus Christ. Now, John makes a special notice of a particular group within this larger group when he speaks of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and who have not worshipped the beast in his image. Friends, all of those who overcome in Jesus will rule and reign with him. Revelation chapter 2 speaks of that. Revelation chapter 3 speaks of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 speaks of it. But John focuses on the tribulation saints in verse 4. Why does he put a focus on them? They're specifically mentioned, I believe, so they can be encouraged. They're not meant to imply that others will be left out. But friends, this is special vindication for the tribulation saints. They suffered under an Antichrist who said, I will rule the earth. And John wants to say, no, you know what? Tables are turned and they are in charge of the earth now. And so the the martyrs are literal, but they're also representative for all of those who give their lives in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Friends, this first resurrection is the granting of resurrection life in resurrection bodies to all those who are dead in Jesus. It's a resurrection of blessing. It's a resurrection of power. It's a resurrection of privilege. After all, they'll be priests of God and they're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. But friends, not every soul has a part in the first resurrection. There are those who verse 5 describes as the rest of the dead. You see, friends, those who do not have a part in the first resurrection are as cursed as those who do have a part in the first resurrection are blessed. Those who have no part, the rest of the dead, they're not blessed. They're under the power of the second death, and they're without privilege. In John chapter 5, Jesus described two resurrections. He said, do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Friends, that's a frightening thought, isn't it? The resurrection of condemnation. And just as much as the saints will receive a resurrection body specially suited to the glories of heaven... Even so, the damned will receive a resurrection body, specially suited to survive the agonies of hell. Friends, after that thousand years is finished, let's look what happens. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, 
Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. You see, for the thousand years of the direct reign of Jesus over this earth, Satan was bound and inactive. But after the thousand years are over, he'll be released and he'll successfully organize many of the earth in another rebellion against God. My friends, you have to ask yourself a question. If it's so great on the millennial earth, then why do people rebel against Jesus when Satan is released again? Well, let me ask another question. If it was so great in the Garden of Eden, why did Adam and Eve rebel? You see the answer, don't you? You see, they will rebel and they'll do it and God will allow it as a final demonstration of man's rebellion and depravity. Friends, during the millennium, outward conformity to Jesus' rule will be required. But an inward embrace of his lordship will be up to the individual. Parents, you know what this is like for your children. You can enforce certain outward requirements in their conduct and what they do. But, but you know that their heart is a different matter. And on the millennial earth, outward conduct will be regulated. You're not going to be able to go around, punch somebody in the nose and, and, and beat them up and get away with it. No, righteousness will be enforced. But you could still walk down the street and hate that person in your heart. You'll still need Jesus Christ to transform hearts during the millennium. And so when Satan has the opportunity, he will gather up an army full of rebels. And if you notice, verse 8, they gather together to battle. And they're ready to do battle with Jesus Christ again. And take a look at verse 9. Here's a dramatic battle for you. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. You get the picture there? Now, we don't know if the saints referred to here are glorified saints who reign with Jesus or earth inhabitants who come to faith in Jesus during the millennium. Either way, the strategy of this vast satanic army is clear. They're here to destroy God's people and the headquarters, the capital city of his administration, Jerusalem, the beloved city. So these armies surround the camp of the saints and friends. We'll be on the earth during this time. And you know what's going to be great? We'll be on the earth in resurrection bodies. Now, the survivors of the Great Tribulation, the citizens of earth, so to speak, the citizens of earth will still have bodies just like yours and mine. But we, glorified saints who rule and reign with Jesus Christ, we're going to have resurrection bodies. We'll be citizens of heaven who happen to live on the earth and, and help Jesus run it. And you know what's going to be great about that? Is our resurrection bodies are going to be so cool. You know, Jesus and his resurrection body, it looked just like Jesus. I mean, just looking at him, you couldn't tell. It wasn't like, oh, wow, look at that halo around his head. Or No, it wasn't anything like that. But yet his body was not encumbered by the same physical limitations that our bodies are. Seemingly, he could pass through walls because he just appeared in a room where all the windows were shut and all the doors were closed. We're going to have the same kind of bodies. Isn't that going to be cool? To be on the earth with a bunch of, you know, schmoes just like us in the, in the old duddy bodies, and we're going to have the resurrection bodies. That is going to be so cool. 
And you know, the resurrection body, it's never going to get old. It's never going to break down. It's never going to wear down. Oh, oh, it's going to be... Is that reason enough to walk with Jesus Christ right now so that you can rule and reign with Him? And just be a... This is going to be a thousand years of fun with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to say that they're not going to be challenges. or shit. That's part of the fun. Now, the great challenge, again, comes at the very end. Where in this final rebellion, Satan gathers together these armies and they come to surround the saints and they come to surround the, 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 the beloved city. And look at the dramatic battle at the end of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's it. You know, he doesn't even send the army on the white horses. It's just like, you know, check, and fire comes down from heaven and devours them. How anticlimactic. It's not even a battle. Look what happens. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, after this aborted battle, Satan is then judged and tormented forever, together with the beast and the false prophet who were cast into the lake of fire at the beginning of the thousand years. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. It says that immediately the battle of Armageddon, before the thousand year reign begins, uh, the false prophet and the beast were cast into the lake of fire. Now, at the end of the thousand years, they're still there. Notice it, verse 10, where the beast and the false prophet are, not were, where they are. Friends, you understand that this argues against the doctrine known as annihilationism. Some people believe that. They say, yes, there will be punishment for the wicked. Their punishment is to never live eternally, and they'll just die in the grave. Or other people say, no, they'll go to hell and there will be punishment in the lake of fire, but it'll just last for a while and then it'll be over. God won't, is not some sadistic sort who will carry on the punishment of hell forever and ever and ever. Friends, I want you to understand. The beast and the false prophet were in the lake of fire for a thousand years. Might I say, it's just beginning for them. It's just beginning. Friends, in eternal punishment, 1,000 years is just the beginning. It never ends. Commentator John Trapp thought this eternal aspect of hell so terrible that he called it another hell in the midst of hell. If you notice it here in verse 10, it says, They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If you do the most scholarly study you can in the ancient Greek language, you'll find out that those words mean this, forever and ever. As a matter of fact, John could not have said it any more strongly in the ancient Greek language. It's irrefutable that what he's talking about is eternal punishment. Literally, it's to the ages of ages. Friends, do you understand this? This is what eternal punishment is. Friends, some people think God is sadistic for this. He's not sadistic. He's only just. God will let any sinner out of hell as soon as they satisfy his divine justice. 
All they have to do is pay the debt they owe to divine justice. It's as if they owe a financial debt to God, so to speak, if you want to translate it to financial terms. And God says, here, you go into hell and you stay there. And as soon as you've paid off, as soon as your own suffering has atoned for your crime, you can be released. But here's the problem. An imperfect fallen being can never make a perfect payment. Never. And if you can't make a perfect payment, you have to make a continual payment. Friends, if you never pay off the balance of your credit card bill, how long will you pay it? Forever. Because you never pay off the balance. That's how it is in hell. You never pay off the balance. And so you suffer and suffer and suffer. Friends, this is the mercy and the grace of God in offering a perfect satisfaction of divine justice. Because a fallen man or a finite being cannot offer a perfect sacrifice, but the Son of God can, and the Son of God did, and that's what he did on the cross. When you get right down to it, friends, there's only two places in all the universe where the problem of sin is going to be resolved. Either here in the lake of fire or on a hill right outside of Jerusalem known as Calvary. And so it's up to you. Where do you want your sin problem resolved? You can resolve it yourself throughout all eternity in the lake of fire or You can trust in what Jesus Christ did for you in all of his mercy and love and receive what he did for you on Calvary. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Friends, who is this? It's Jesus Christ, or perhaps it's the fullness of the triune God. And earth and heaven flee from this throne, but there's no place for them. There's absolutely no hiding from this throne. No one can escape the judgment that it represents. Now, friends, many or even most Bible scholars believe that Christians will never appear before this great white throne. It's not because we can hide from it. Nobody can. But the idea is that we're spared from this awesome throne of judgment because our sins are already judged in Jesus Christ at the cross. We don't escape God's judgment. We satisfy it in Jesus Christ. But for those for whom justice is not satisfied, they will face this great white throne judgment. In verse 12, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Now, friends, I want you to notice something, that they're standing before God in verse 12. Did you notice that? This is not a trial. You know what you use a trial for? A trial is used to determine guilt or innocence. You lay at the facts of the matter. You know that the prosecution presents their case and the defense presents their case and the judge and the jury, well, they have to figure out what's right and what's just and you're sorting out the facts and you're sorting out the evidence in the trial. This is not a trial. The trial's over. In Roman courts in the ancient world, 
after the defendant was found guilty, he stood and received his sentence. That's what it is in verse 12. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. This is not a trial. This is a sentencing. There is nothing for those who stand before the throne to say. Friends, there are many people who say, and I say this guardedly because sometimes they say it out of tremendous pain, but they say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a thing or two to say to God. Years ago, I read a letter in Dear Abby, and this is some of it. She says, Dear Abby, I'm troubled with something Arita wrote. He said, what right do we mortals have to demand an explanation from God? Abby, that writer has never known the gut-wrenching pain of losing a child. God didn't answer my prayers, and I resent being told that I have no right to question God. If there's a God, and if I ever get to meet him face to face, you can bet your life I'll have plenty of whys for him to answer. I want to know why my little girl died and that drunk was allowed to go on living. I loved her more than my life and I miss her so. I'm mad that I have to live in a world where she no longer lives and I want to know why. Why shouldn't I have the right to ask God? Aren't we supposedly created in his image? If so, surely he has a heart and a soul capable of hurting, just as I heard. Why would he not expect to be questioned if he has anything to do with miracles? I don't fear the Lord, and I don't fear hell either. I know what hell is like, and I've already been there since the day my precious daughter was killed. Please sign me, a bereaved mother. Friends, your hearts go out to someone in such pain. Friends, even on that day, even that woman will see the righteousness and the goodness of God And she will see her own sin and her own rejection of him more clearly than ever. You read something like that and you wish how this woman knew how the father himself in heaven knew what it's like to give up your child. Friends, there will be no criticism of God on that day. Nobody is going to stand before the throne of God and have a thing or two to tell him. Every mouth will be stopped. The dead will be judged, as it says, each one according to their works. If your name isn't listed in the book of life, then you're judged according to your works. So how about it? No, thank you. I don't want to be judged according to my works, do you? I want to find my place in Jesus Christ. Finally, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. See, friends, here the last echoes of sin are now eliminated. Death is the result of sin and death is gone. Hades is the result of death. And and the last vestiges of sin's unlawful domination are done away with. And it's all cast into the lake of fire. Friends, when we talk about hell, most people usually think in their mind the lake of fire. I want you to understand, nobody's in there now. Nobody. Not even the false prophet. Not even the the Antichrist. They're not there yet. They're going to go there first. The first two inhabitants of the lake of fire are going to be the, the Antichrist and his false prophet. Then Satan's going to join them. 
and all of damned humanity. By the way, also, all the fallen angels will go there too. Because if there's anything to remember about hell, about the lake of fire, is that as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25, that it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you realize that, friend? It was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not a fit place for human beings. Men only go to this place prepared for the devil and his angels if they reject God's salvation and condemn themselves. Jesus Christ in his mercy and love and grace, he offers another way. He says, come my way, escape this. When a person dies right now, they don't go to the lake of fire. They go to a place called Hades. It's the jail, so to speak. It's the county jail. And they await before they are, are sentenced and, and go to finally their, their final penitentiary, which is the lake of fire. But people only are sent to the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. Friends, they could spare themselves that if they would trust in what Jesus Christ has done on their behalf. How great is the love and the mercy of God to offer us an escape from this? Because if you notice... It says, this is the second death. You know, there's a second and a higher life. You can be born again, or you can be dead again. There's a second and higher life, but there's a second and deeper death. And after you you live that life, after you receive that second life, there's no more death. But after you receive that second death, there's no more life. Not any life in God. One commentator said that in hell the devil and the damned will have punishment without pity, misery without mercy, sorrow without succor, crying without comfort, mischief without measure, torments without end, and past imagination. And how much Jesus loves us to spare us from this. Friends, don't you see? Mankind is rushing towards the lake of fire. Can you envision in your mind this mass of humanity, this great train of humanity rushing towards the lake of fire and Jesus Christ stands off on the side and he says, don't go there. Come, I'll pay your debt. I'll pay for your sins. I did it over here on Calvary. Come, I'll stand in your place. I'll take the punishment you deserve. I endured the wrath of God for you so that you wouldn't have to endure it in the lake of fire. Come, come. And all those who will come after Jesus. All those who refuse continue on that broad road that leads to destruction. Thank you, Jesus, for standing on the side of the road and for calling out for all who will follow. Lord Jesus, you said that if you would be lifted up, that you would draw all men to you. Well, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to lift up Jesus in our lives That Jesus Christ and him crucified would be exalted in us and by us and through us. So that others on this great mass of humanity rushing headlong towards hell would see it and be spared. And that you would win a greater victory than ever. Lord, you never propelled the lake of fire for for us, but for the devil and his angels. Lord, I pray that people would be able to let go of their sin. And grab onto Christ, because their sin is going to the lake of fire, but Jesus is going to heaven. Help us to follow him there. 
Thank you that you've seated us in heaven right now with Jesus. Help us to live it out day by day in Jesus' name. Amen.